What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. Chiefs or 49ers? Who will win Super Bowl 58 this Sunday? Plus, the stories to watch as the NHL returns from their All-Star break. And the biggest snub on this year's NBA All-Star selections. You're listening to episode 103 of Let Me Speak. Time to get things started. Fire up that intro. February 6th, 2024, for episode 103 of Let Me Speak. I thank everyone once again tuning in. If this is your first time listening or watching, or if you have been a lifelong listener and subscriber, I thank you every single week for keeping this podcast alive. You might notice the lighting is a little bit different here uh, in Swamp Scott Mass because we've got more light. The sunset is now finally after five o'clock, and that just gets me so, so excited. And the sun is out. I mean, we've gone, I want to say this is the third straight day that there has been sunlight. And we had gone, what, a week or so maybe without seeing the sun. It had just been overcast. It had been rain uh, a couple of times for some flurries. But to actually see the sun, it just brightens the mood, brightens the day every single time. And, of course, you can't get much more bright and excited than the Super Bowl. We're finally here less than a week away We'll be going out to Las Vegas this Sunday for the Chiefs and the 49ers. A nice little rematch of Super Bowl 54 from 2020. And I was doing like before sort of figuring out the notes of what I want to talk about and talk about the keys for the game. I kind of reflected back to that game four years ago. Obviously, it was before the world went crazy and turned upside down via the pandemic. But that game itself and where each franchise was i mean kansas city was at the start of you know a dynasty that no one really expected you know uh the chiefs finally you know once it was like the patriots were out of the way and they were starting to wind down it was like okay who's gonna be this next great team and kansas city just seen lined up for it andy reed uh was going for his first super bowl in his second attempt um And just the way Kansas City was, they were like a revelation. It was like when Steph Curry and the Warriors broke through. It was like when Tom Brady and the Patriots broke through. All these great dynasties right at the beginning. And Kansas City was no exception. And especially the way that the game went when you had the San Francisco team that is historic. Even though they had Jimmy Garoppolo at the uh, quarterback position. Um and no one really knew what San Francisco was going to be like if this was just a one-time thing because they were, what, 3-13 and 13 or something like that the year before? Like, it was not good. And then Kyle Shanahan comes in, and he turns the franchise around and gets them back to the Super Bowl. Now, the game itself back then uh, in Miami was I, – I, I had to look at the highlights to really jog my memory, and obviously – being down 20 to 10 uh, was Kansas City. 
I mean, it, it's basically what we saw the Patriots do against the Seahawks, you know? So it was like, yeah, it was a 10-point lead, but considering the offense and how lethal it was, I don't think anyone really had any doubts as compared to the last time a team was down 10, uh, whatever, for the first time. I think no one really doubted the Chiefs, the fact that they could come back into this in the fourth quarter, and they just broke away with it. 31-20 to 20 was the final score and was the Chiefs' uh, first of two Super Bowls that they were in. But Kansas City is now in their fourth Super Bowl in the last five years. They won another AFC championship. I will say, comparing that time to now, uh, at least on San Francisco's side, they have way more weapons than they did, and they've clearly made some giant upgrades at their positions. I mean, Brock Purdy, I'm taking him over Jimmy Garoppolo, even if he was at the height of his career. I'm definitely taking Christian McCaffrey over Raheem Mostert at the time. I mean, San Francisco was still like a running back by committee at that point. Um, the leading receiver in that game for the Niners, at least in terms of yards, was Kendrick Bourne. Okay? And he immediately uh, jetted away after a year, went to New England, and became irrelevant. I'm obviously taking Brandon Ayuk over Kendrick Bourne. And then you have some of the carryovers, at least on the offensive side. You have Kittle, uh, Debo Samuel, just to name a few. But San Francisco is so much more talented than they are now. For Kansas City, though, it's clear that the offense has regressed. Because when you lose a guy like Tyreek Hill and the speed and acceleration that he brings, I mean, in that game, Tyreek caught nine balls for a buck oh five. Uh, in yards. He didn't get a touchdown, but the offense is clearly much different now. They're a lot more methodical uh, rather than going to these big explosive plays. So these teams are clearly different from the last time that they played each other in the Super Bowl. Now, what do I think are the big keys for the games? I'll start on the Niners side of things. And I think the overarching key is consistency because so far in this postseason, what we've seen is they've been able to make these rallies and have some big comebacks. I mean, they had the fourth quarter comeback uh, against Green Bay. They rallied uh, against the Lions in the second half. I don't think you can do that with this Kansas City team, even though when you look on paper, Packers and the Lions offensively might be better than what uh, the Chiefs bring, but they need a full four quarters outside of just one good quarter or one good half. They need a full 60 minutes of good play because this is a Chiefs team as experienced as they are you cannot have any big deficit against them late not at all you know this isn't going to be a 28 to 3 situation you know you're not going to be able to come back um so consistency is the overarching one now I think in terms of like the nitty-gritty I think again you have to look at the quarterback play you have to look at Brock Purdy and what he's done overall in this postseason is he hasn't lost the Niners any games because what Jimmy Garoppolo did in the Super Bowl back then was had two really bad interceptions that basically lost the Niners the game. And that Kansas City defense was not as good as where they are right now. So the big key is Brock Purdy not having those back-breaking mistakes and really taking advantage of the weapons that he has. He has Christian McCaffrey in the flat or just a couple yards downfield. He'll have George Kittle on a couple of mismatches. Use the speed of Debo Samuel. He's got the weapons around him, and he's pretty good at scrambling himself. He had some great runs 
against the Lions. So I think as long as he doesn't lose the game with mistakes, I think Brock Birdie is going to be okay. I'm not too concerned about him. Like I said last week, anyone who was predicting him to fall off or whatever, or we're still doubting him, clearly needs to get their head checked at all. Um, another key that I see is uh, for the Niners defensively is in the secondary. I think the passing game has really been carrying the Chiefs for a long, long time, or at least in this season. So I think the big key, um, at least in the secondary, is to take all those weapons away. I think I look at a guy like Charvarius Ward, they're probably going to put him on Rushy Rice because Rice is the number one wide receiver. He might not be the number one option to Travis Kelsey, but Rice in terms of a receiver is going to be um, the top option out there. I think of a guy like Tayshawn Gibson as well at the safety. Uh, he's going to have some really good communication because Mahomes has done a good job uh, in this postseason of utilizing his tight ends, using the flat game, uh, able to just swing it out to Pacheco or whoever it may be and let them make plays. So I think there needs to be some communication there, especially uh, from Gibson at safety, going down to the linebacker like Fred Warner, and then at the pass rush with Chase Young, uh, Bosa, and so on. So I think the communication defensively has to be spot on because Mahomes – while he while the talent may not be there in terms of his weapons, he will still get the ball to those weapons. So communication is going to be key. I think Warner is probably the best linebacker that the Chiefs have faced. So I don't think it's going to be easy swing passes out there. I think Warner has to be on top of his game. Same thing with uh, Greenlaw as well in the linebacker. So I think um, pass pass rush, I'm not too concerned about. Uh, at least for the Niners, because I would put their pass rush against this Chiefs offensive line, especially uh, at the tackles position. I've said week after week how much I don't like Jawan Taylor and all the penalties that he gives. I think Bosa Young and whoever that is can have their way uh, with him on the offensive line. I think in the middle as well, depending on the health of Joe Tooney, if he'll play or not, I think that's um, a big factor as well. So I look at the linebacker secondary sort of combination uh and their communication. So that's what I'm seeing with the Niners is consistency, Brock Purdy not making mistakes, and effective communication between linebacker and secondary. Now, on the other side for Kansas City, it is hard to doubt them um and criticize them. I mean, yes, you can give them criticism, but this team always finds a way. They will always find a way. Um, and obviously the big story has been offensively. This is not the same Patrick Mahomes led offense that we have seen in the past. So what I am really looking for knee deep in that offense is a big game from Isaiah Pacheco. I think Pacheco, the way he's been able to run the ball and have been able, as I said, to catch the ball out of the flat on these short check down plays. Um, I think that's big, but I think at least rushing the ball. He needs to have a big game. I mean, he hasn't hit triple-digit rushing yards yet this postseason. So I think he's going to need a very strong running game. And just the running game in general from the Chiefs, between him, Edward Zolaire, sometimes Jerick McKinnon as well, I think they need a really strong running game because then it can open up Patrick Mahomes and the offense to really let, uh, let the ball loose and let that offense go nuts. Um, I think... What I talked about with the Niners defense is they will at least take Travis Kelsey away 
for a half, which is what we saw against Baltimore. You saw how effective Travis Kelsey was in that first half. He caught the touchdown. Um, but then when you get to the second half, it was basically non-existent. Same thing with the entire offense. So I think the receivers um, need to have a very big game. They can't have any drops at all. I think the Chiefs will absolutely win this game if they put up a zero in the drops category as well. And that goes for Rashi Rice, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Watson, all of those guys. They need big plays because we know what the Niners are going to do. They're going to try and take the best option away, which is Travis Kelsey, though. So that could be double teams. So they will take him away, um, if not for the whole game, at least a half. So it's going to be those other receivers. You know, similar to what we saw in the uh, the clinching play against Baltimore. Mahomes on that third down, just throwing a loft pass to MVS, and he's able to catch that. I think those big plays are absolutely going to be needed. Um, I do see this, though, as a game where Patrick Mahomes is going to have to put the team on his shoulders once again. I mean, the fact that his options will be taken away and that he'll just be scrambling, um, trying to go for the first down. So I think he's going to have to make a bunch of just magical plays out there, which we know he can do. I have no doubt that there will be magic from Mahomes uh, once again. No doubt about it. Like he's, of course, it's in Las Vegas and he can put on a, some kind of magic show or whatever, you know, maybe call up like, Penn and Teller, some kind of magician or whatever. I do, you know, enjoy my fair share of uh, magic shows. But um, Mahomes is definitely going to have to be the catalyst for how the offense goes. And he's going to have to scramble because the pass rush is that effective. The secondary and linebackers, as I said, they're going to take all the options away. So it's just a matter of not giving him too much space, at least for the Niners defensively. And Mahomes just has to be smart. Similar to Brock Purdy. Just be smart. We know he can do that. He's not going to try and force anything in there. He's just going to be able to create these impromptu, incredible plays that we've seen all throughout his tenure and his career. Um, but this does look like, at least to me, that on offense, he's going to have to carry the load and is going to have to make something out of nothing much more than once. Much more than once. Um, the defensive side of the ball, obviously, as I said, that's where... Kansas City's strongest point has been. But I think as good as they are, I think it's going to have to be, they're going to have to create some turnovers. I think I think they really are because they've only got four turnovers so far in the three postseason games that they played. Two picks and two fumble recoveries. Yes, they have six sacks, but the pass rush is going to be effective because of many of you towards ACL last week. And we haven't really heard anything from Chris Jones. I think... What offensive lines have been doing so far has been trying to take away. He's not as effective as he's been, at least on the pass rush uh, side of things. So I think he's going to have to have a big game as well. And then the defense in general creating turnovers. They're going to have to create multiple turnovers because this is a very smart San Francisco team pressuring Brock Purdy into making those mistakes that I talked about he couldn't have is going to be absolutely crucial for the defense because we know that this is just a team that just hunkers down and will make the key stops when they have to the classic bend don't break kind of style of things um, but if this is a defense that can allow seven points uh, in the bitter cold to Miami and then 10 to a lethal offense in Baltimore um, this should be a really good game now as far as a prediction, I might be taking a risk 
because I literally just said you can't bet a pet against Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to pick the 49ers in this game, and I think they're going to win by two scores. I just, I, I sort of look at, it's sort of been like a Cinderella run for Kansas City, but I think the clock's about to strike midnight because while they're an incredibly resilient and a good team, obviously a generational talent in Mahomes, who in my opinion is at least top five or is on track to be a top five quarterback um, in NFL history. I just look, there's too many weapons for San Francisco. And as long as Kyle Shanahan doesn't pull in Atlanta or doesn't pull what he did in 2020 with a, a bunch of uh, comebacks or, or whatever, I, I think this is a, this is a guy, Kyle Shanahan, he's learned his lesson. And I think this is just a loaded San Francisco team. You know, they've got, top five guys at almost every single position. Um, so it, it's hard for me. You know, I picked the Niners to win the Super Bowl at the beginning of the year. It'd be wrong of me to stray away from them now. So my final prediction is that I think the Niners are going to win this game. Final score is going to be 31 to 17. 31 to 17 is going to be uh, the final score, I believe that the Niners are going to win and they're going to get back to uh, those Super Bowl winning ways. And as much as I hate to say it as a Patriots fan, they're going to get right up there with the Patriots in terms of Super Bowl wins. But I am looking forward to uh, a great game. I thought preseason, this was the pick all along. I know I had said midseason and at the beginning of the playoffs that, you know, uh, Niners and Ravens looked like a good matchup, but I think this is going to be a good matchup as well. So I'm very much looking forward to see what happens this Sunday in Las Vegas for Super Bowl 58. But it's not just the Super Bowl that's going on. We got the NHL returning from their all-star break. They'll get the second half of their season underway. And we will tell you what are the big headlines to watch for in our next segment up next. So while the world wants to talk about the Super Bowl and Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift and conspiracy theories, everything like that, it's not just the NFL and the Super Bowl that's going on in the sports world. Let's talk about the NHL because they are officially back from their all-star break. Their first set of games was last night, but most teams will be getting back to it uh, tonight or tomorrow uh, at some point. And the playoff push officially begins, which, by the way, will turn into their Olympic break uh, in 2026. So that's going to be a little something different uh, in a couple of years. But before we get into the second half storylines, I just want to say uh, in terms of the all-star festivities that they had, I like that they returned to the player draft. That was a little bit fun, but I wish it wasn't as clustered, I, I guess, as it was. I, I don't think it needed to be like in that arena. I thought like a little theater hall or whatever in Toronto was fine. And then you had everyone mic'd up and you couldn't really like hear the conversations or, or whatever, you know, and then just some awkward celebrity involvement. I mean, you had Michael Buble straight up telling you, Oh yeah, I'm on shrooms right now. Um, which was fun. Um, I, I think that could be changed with the draft. I like the, sh uh, the skills competition. I'm always a big fan of those sort of competitions where it's like, you know, dunk contest, NBA home run derby. I wish they did a little bit more of that. Um, so I, I did like that. And then the game in general, I mean, it, it was in Toronto. Like what, what more do you want than a couple of Maple Leafs 
um, winning the games. But I, I thought overall, you know, it was steady, steady all-star break um, in Toronto. You know, obviously things could have been a little bit different, um, as I said, with the, the player draft. But overall watching it, you know, I was I was entertained, I, I would say myself you know i i'd like the the breakaway challenges that they have where they could get a little bit creative you know that that's you know back in my day when like patrick kane was was doing stuff like that and ovi was wearing like a australian hat or something like that. i don't know what it was and he had two sticks or whatever you know that that's back in my day which is um, i'm dating myself for for the knowledge of my hockey um but obviously it's nice to see the uh players have some fun uh because now the the grind really really begins um, as we've got two months, two and a half months uh, until postseason play gets underway. And I think obviously the, the story in the NHL going into the break and coming out of the break has to be the turnaround that the Edmonton Oilers have been able to do. I mean, come on, 16 game winning streak. That's unreal. I mean, is this just like, are the 2020s like the year of the NHL where like teams are making history? Like we had the Bruins in their historic year last year that the Oilers and like, a historic winning streak that's up there with like the undefeated Patriots and the uh, Warriors start to the NBA season a couple of years ago. Like, is this just the the history that that's going down? Um, now you do have to keep in mind that the Oilers are still third place right now in their division. So they're not, you know, they didn't ascend right to the top. And I think the break did kind of hurt them a little bit. I don't expect them to win any more games, maybe get like, two more of them under their belt. But I think more than the winning streak, it's the fact of what they've done to turn things around. You got to keep in mind, they fired their coach. Jay Woodcroft was let go after a three, nine and one start. And since then under Chris Knobloch, they're 20 and four, 20 and four under a new coat. I mean, a sudden turnaround like that does not happen overnight. Look at the the Clippers when they fought, um, when they made a big trade. Look at the Bucks when they fired Adrian Griffin and went with uh, Doc Rivers instead. So the fact that they had to make this move obviously makes sense considering the window is that short with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. I mean, how many times are you going to get those those two guys, the caliber that they have um, with a championship window that they have? But you already look at where they were to start the year versus now. I mean, their defensive goaltending uh, with Stuart Skinner has been so much better, so much better. You got to keep in mind, the Oilers haven't given up more than three goals during these 16 games that they've all won. So the Oilers turnaround has just been phenomenal to watch. And I don't expect them to make the Stanley Cup, though, because they always continue to crap in their pants and not get to the championship game. So I don't expect this thing to turn right into a Stanley Cup, but you have to at least credit them for salvaging the season. Cause I mean, when you have guys like Connor McDavid and Dreisaitl and Nugent Hopkins, all these guys that Edmonton has, and they were sitting at the bottom of the NHL. I mean, they were there with the Blackhawks and the Sharks who are just terrible teams right now. Um, the fact that they could turn it around and salvage the year. I mean, props to them uh, and Chris Knobloch and the whole Oilers organization for keeping all their hopes alive. But as I said, this is a winning streak that is going to end uh, sooner rather than later, if you ask me. Um, because they are still chasing teams like the Canucks and the Bruins who sit on top 
of the NHL with 71 points. Um, don't tell me we're going to a rematch of 2011. I maybe, maybe, you know, he'll have the Bruins fans chant chanting at the, the Sedin brothers. No, no, they won't. Um, I, I will say, I don't know if I can expect these two to stay on top the way they are. I mean, we'll talk about the Bruins like when we get to our let's get local, but I've been saying it like week after week, the fact that they're in this supposed gap year rebuild kind of thing and they're sitting on top, you know, is very, very impressive. And the same thing with the Canucks. It feels like they just kind of came out of nowhere, but you got to keep in mind, like the Golden Knights are still out there. Um, The Florida Panthers are still out there the Rangers, the Lightning, like I could go on and on, you know, the Avalanche. There are still some great teams out there, and I could fully expect some shuffling going around um, in the NHL standings. Um, But I think those two at least have have sealed their spot in the playoffs, I think. Um, You know, because some some teams have made some some coaching decisions. I mean, that's another thing I want to get into. You know, I mentioned Jay Woodcroft being fired. He was one of six coaches that were fired mid-season, mid-season. And you got to keep in mind that some of these teams are still fighting for a playoff spot. The Islanders, the Senators, the Wild, the Blues, and the Kings, along with the Oilers, fired their coaches. And some of them have turned it around. The Islanders, I think they won their first game with Patrick Waugh as their coach. Um, The Wild are still fighting for a spot. The Blues are still fighting for their spot. I mean, the Oilers and the Kings we can get rid of because they're kind of at the at the bottom right now, but I hate to say it, but I feel like this could become the norm. Um, if we see some of these teams get into the postseason, that more franchise would be comfortable with getting rid of a head coach mid season. I mean, how many times do you see it and how many high caliber teams do you see it in all of sports? I mean, you see it in the NFL with teams that are already out of the postseason. Same thing with like the, the MLB and the uh, NBA like this happens more in hockey than it does anywhere else. And if this is the key to success, you might see more and more teams in the future start to do that, which kind of scares me because I think consistency is going to be the key and you don't want to make the change too late. Cause I mean, LA fired it right before uh, the all-star break. Um, the Oilers, I think did it early enough. But you have the Islanders like doing it in January. Um, you know, I just hate to see this become the norm because this is not what it used to be. And consistency and having that true voice. I mean, we talked about there was a time that the NBA sort of had like a player movement where they were like dictating things. I don't know if this is going to be the case in the NHL because players could go up to management and say, we want a new voice. And they'll acquiesce to it. I'm just nervous that this is going to start becoming the norm. Because firing coaches doesn't solve everything. It doesn't. Like, this could just be a one-year wonder kind of thing. But I hope that's not the case. I really hope that coaches getting fired midseason in the NHL is not the case. But those are some of the teams I will watch for in the second half. And overall in the NHL, you know, how accurate will these standings be? Because you got to keep in mind, Panthers were the very last team to make it, and they got all the way to the Stanley Cup. So you can't read into all these predictions like this. I mean, I might be wrong about the Oilers. Maybe they do make a Stanley Cup run and get to the Stanley Cup. That's the beauty of the NHL is that 
nothing is for certain, no matter where you are in the standings. So that's a preview of the NHL, but we've got so much more to dive into in the NBA uh, and all around the sports world. We'll do that coming up next with our segment, Quick Hits. We have got more stories to hit on, so let's do that in our quick hit segments. And we're going to circle back to the NFL and talk some off-the-field stuff because there are now officially no more head coach openings in the NFL as Seattle and Washington made their hires last week. Mike McDonald goes from defensive coordinator of the Ravens to head coach of the Seahawks. And I think it's a it's a good hire because I think really since the, the Legion of Boom days have gone have gone out they've really needed to focus on their defense and they did rebuild it uh, a little bit this past year I thought the uh, drafting of uh, Devin Witherspoon was a really good pick Um, I mean they do really need to at least in this offseason focus offensively uh, quarterback Um, they'll obviously have Kenneth Walker and they'll have all their receiving options but I think they can primarily focus uh, on quarterback uh, but more so defensively Um, so I think Mike McDonald is a good pick. And then we have Dan Quinn getting another shot uh, at head coach as he goes to the commanders. I I sort of question this because I don't think Dan Quinn, you know, he can be a good coach for like a year, but if you give him some time, you got to mimer. This is the guy who was the head coach during 28 to three. That's all. That's all you got to say right there. I mean, granted Kyle Shanahan is on the verge of a super bowl and he was the coordinator during that time, but still, Dan Quinn was leading the way. And this is a guy who gets a lot of inconsistency from his defense. And considering also the options that are out there with Mike Rabel, like he's still out there. He was a nominee. Like, why didn't Seattle go after him? Why didn't Washington go after him? I talked about last week about why they weren't going after Bill Belichick because of all the baggage. But Rabel, apparently, at least from what I saw with reports, is that his sort of hardo personality uh, with like his character turned people away. Really? Really? Like, at least if you're on the Washington side of things, you need a little kick in the ass. You need a little kick in the butt. But obviously, they didn't like it when Eric Bieniemy did that to him, which is why Dan Quid said he's not going to be a part of the staff anymore. You know, same thing with Seattle. They like a good little, you know, they might need a little kick in the butt because Pete Carroll seems like so laid back and chilled. He's already running down the sideline celebrating or whatever, but I would have picked Mike Vrabel over these two without a doubt. Um, but I think Seattle made a good hire. Washington made a questionable hire. Um, if you're asking me, um, but staying off the field in the NFL, we just heard from Roger Goodell during Super Bowl media day last night that the Eagles are going to open their season in Brazil, which is going to be the league's first time in Sao Paulo, which I got to be honest, I was not expecting Brazil to be the next location, to be the the newest internal location. I mean, we've seen London, um, Germany, Mexico City. um, You know, Brazil is uh, is, uh, interesting for me. I definitely thought, you know, they probably would have stuck in the European side of ways, you know, maybe like Italy or 
or Spain or, or somewhere, I don't know, somewhere in Europe over Brazil. But hey, if the, the game wants to grow international, so be it. So what it's going to be is it's going to be a Friday night game. It's going to be a Friday game after the season opener on Thursday, which I'm hoping that if they're doing the league justice or if they're doing the Eagles and whoever they play justice, they'll make sure that they play on Sunday the next week. So week one can be Eagles, whoever on Friday, and then Sunday can be um, whoever um, it, the next matchup can be, whoever that is. But as long as, as long as a franchise isn't going there, as long as it's not a franchise, I'm okay with a game uh, there. And if it, and it's week one, it's week one early in the season. I like that they're doing this week one. Um, as long as they're not doing it like in the second half of the season where teams are like making a push, I'm okay with those sort of international games. That's, that's sort of my stance on, you know, these international games. I don't want to see uh, a franchise out there. I don't want to see a franchise in London or down in uh, Mexico City, but I like seeing games there. I like seeing those games. Um, really, the big story, at least in my eyes, outside of, you know, the Super Bowl or whatever, would be in the NBA and the reserves uh, for the All-Star game that got released uh, last Thursday. In the East, we've got Bam Adebayo, Paolo Bancaro, Jalen Brown, Jalen Brunson, Donovan Mitchell, Tyrese Maxey, Julius Randle. Now, I am okay with these. I'm okay. I, I don't really have any complaints. And we now know that Joel Embiid and Julius Randle aren't going to play. So that leaves two opening spots. You know, I think I would narrow it down to four, four players just off the top of my head. I look at Derek White, Kristaps Porzingis, obviously biased <laughs> if you're asking me, but I could see them considering Jimmy Butler. I could see them considering Trey young. Um, so I mean, again, no, no issues. I just, I didn't see Bam out of bio as sort of a standout player. If you're asking me considering the heat, I think are in seventh or eighth right now in the Eastern conference, um, which, which is okay, which is okay. But I didn't think Bam out of bio's numbers, you know, blew me out of the water as compared to a guy like Paolo Bancaro, like Bancaro had a really good start to the year and the magic are in, a playing spot right now, which I totally get that. I totally get that. I mean, I look at like the Celtics have two, the Knicks have two, the Sixers have two, and the Bucks have two. So that I I that makes sense to me. I I I can see that. The West though is where I see the controversy coming out. The West you've got Steph Curry, Anthony Davis, Anthony Edwards, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Carl Anthony Towns, and Devin Booker. Okay, so I again, like this is a good roster of reserves, but how are there no Sacramento Kings when they're currently sitting fifth place in the Western Conference right now? You don't put De'Aaron Fox or DeMontis a bonus. You need to keep in mind the Lakers are sitting in like ninth or tenth right now, and they'll have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Okay, yeah, I mean you're being really, really considerate also with the Phoenix Suns who I think are sitting in six right now, and you're sending two all-stars there. How do you not have a top-five team in Sacramento without one all-star? That does not make any sense. And considering the way that the rosters look, there's more emphasis on winning. So what? Because the Clippers have been rolling with uh, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and James Harden as well in the big three. You had to pick two of them. Okay, that makes sense. Minnesota's at the top. 
You have to have two there, obviously. But the Lakers having two, like, I just don't get it. I don't get how you leave a king or you don't have any Sacramento players at all. Now, it could still be possible if any of these reserves or starters come up with an injury or something like that. But it doesn't make sense that you don't have De'Aaron Fox or Demonis Sabonis on any of these rosters at all. I mean, maybe they could sign like a one day or whatever and replace Embiid and Randall and get some credit there. That just doesn't make sense. So I think that's a bad decision right there. I would be replacing Devin Booker with either Fox or Sabonis because you can't go. If you're if you're really going to credit winning, and, you know, Steph Curry is the only exception, but he's Steph effing Curry without a, without a doubt. Like, he's the only exception to that rule. But if you're going to emphasize winning, you need to have Sacramento represented on the All-Star team, without a doubt, considering this was one of the best stories last year as well. Um, I just don't get it. I don't get it at all what they were thinking, not having anyone on Sacramento there. Um, shifting over to baseball, you know, it seems like, you know, we're at least we've moved from one big signing uh, a week to now two big signings. And, you know, the trucks are already leaving. And by the time pitchers and catchers report, there still might be some big names out there on the market. But a name that just signed a big contract in-house uh, yesterday was Bobby Witt Jr., former uh, rookie of the year. How about this? 11 years and $288 million. He signs an extension with Kansas City. I am very surprised that Kansas City shoveled out this type of money out there for Bobby Witt Jr. Um, Because, I mean, yes, they found their building block for any potential return to contention. But how often do you see the Royals making big signings like this? Like, if they did this more often they wouldn't be as mediocre um, as they are. Um, my guess is that they were probably scared by the fallout that they had after winning the World Series in 2015. It was like they won that championship, and boom, they went right back down to the cellar. And I think the only guy they still have on that roster is Salvador Perez, but he's nearing the end of his tenure, um, I think at least in in age side of things. So I'm I'm shocked that the Royals decided to make this signing, make it official and lock down uh, with Junior. You know, he is a shortstop, and it's kind of hard to build a team around um, a shortstop, but he is a he's a 30-30 guy. He made the all-star team. Um, I think he's got a gold glove. Don't, you know, correct me on that, but I'm, I'm surprised that Kansas City decided to shovel out this kind of money out there. Not saying Bobby Witt Jr. is a uh, bad player. He's fantastic, but the fact that the Royals would shovel – this kind of money out for him does surprise me in a little bit. Um, and then this last story, I, I hate to end it on a somber note, but I do have to mention uh, the passing of Carl Weathers. Of course, if you don't know, um, he passed away at 76 at the end of last week. Um, he's got famous roles out there. He was Apollo Creed and arguably one of the best sports movies out there in Rocky. Um, of course, he was Chubbs and Happy Gilmore, um, maybe my favorite character that he played. And, you kind of forget the impact that some actors have when you see them uh, in these certain roles. Like when you look at the overall movie itself, Rocky, you know, the the easy story would be Rocky wins the match over Apollo Creed. Um, but he doesn't. But there's still this sort of happy moment. And Creed 
is able to win that boxing match, but just the character himself. Like, I don't think there could have been any other option other than Carl Weathers. He played that role phenomenally. Um, so I, I send my condolences to everyone out there uh, involved with Carl Weathers, who knew Carl Weathers, um, one of the most legendary actors of all time, sadly uh, passing away at the end of last week. So those are the topics that uh, we're hitting on that didn't quite make the headlines. But of course, when you're living around here in the city of Boston, everything's a headline. So let's dive into those as we hit into our Let's Get Local segment of the week. This is our city. So here we go now for all you Patriots, Red Sox, Bruins, and Celtics fans out there. It's our usual let's get local segment. And same thing as we always do. We look at the negatives, which obviously are Patriots and Red Sox. And we talk about those positives at the end with Celtics and Bruins. Let's start with the Patriots because obviously this has been a crazy offseason so far. And we haven't even hit free agency. We haven't even hit the draft. But the coaching staff is now officially filled out at least the primary um, positions. I think they're still missing a linebackers coach. Um, if I looked at the openings correctly, but we officially have the special teams coordinator. Jeffrey Springer was announced. Demarcus Covington was announced as the defensive coordinator. And Alex Van Pelt moves over from the Cleveland Browns and is officially hired as the offensive coordinator. Now this took me by surprise because the last report I was seeing was from Andrew Callahan and he was saying Nick Cayley is far and away like the the leading candidate right now he he had steps ahead of all the other candidates um that they've interviewed and hired or whatever I don't know what all of a sudden the turnaround was but apparently there was something that Gerard Mayo liked from Van Pelt and I wasn't upset at the at the hire when when it was first announced i thought you know i initially i said last week i thought nick cayley was going to be the guy i thought they were going to hire nick cayley because of the connections but as i told uh fitzy and hart uh and ken and curtis last saturday on wbei was that they want absolutely zero trace of bill belichick they don't want any influence on him at all None, not even a whisker. Like if he went to the, you know, if he like left behind like a lucky pencil or whatever, you know what they do? They take that pencil, they'd snap it in half and throw it in the trash and bring in the, um, whoever's working in the uh, maintenance facilities or whatever, being like, take this, burn it away. That's what they want. Um, and I was skeptical, you know, reading all the, uh, insight from what Van Pelt's role was with the Browns. You know, he, wasn't a game he wasn't a play caller he wasn't a play caller um he didn't really have like the coordinator role in terms of like um scheming the offense kind of putting the offense together he was basically like sort of Stefanski's communicator um but then when you hear more about like he was sort of the middleman you know when things got tense he was able to break the ice or whatever and he was able to control the crazy quarterback situation the fact that the Browns had five different quarterbacks uh, start for them on uh, the fact that he took over for Stefanski during the the 2021 playoffs when Stefanski had COVID and Van Pelt was the guy leading the way 
uh, for that Cleveland victory uh, over the Steelers in the wild card round, uh, which I which I remember. So I think overall I'm more positive about the hire than I am negative. You know, it, when it comes down to if he's going to be the guy calling plays or if Gerard will take that on himself, I have no idea. But I think overall I like the hire. And going outside of the circle and getting an outsider's uh, input, I think, is 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 a good hire. I, I do think it's a good call. What's not a good call, uh, though, I would say, is Ben McAdoo, because we officially found out uh, today that he's going to be hired as an offensive assistant. Now, I have no idea, as of right now, what his role is going to be. But if there's if he's got any part of game day management, I don't want it. I don't want it at all. He had a Giants team, which had one of the best receivers at the time, and Odell Beckham Jr., and he had Eli Manning, an already accomplished quarterback, and that offense looked like trash, absolute trash. All of his teams um, that he coached for and all the offenses that he was involved in looked like garbage. So the fact that he's still brought in as an assistant and an assistant head coach, you're basically doing the Joe Judge thing all over again. You don't want that. You'll have you've heard, or at least I I have heard and I've read. Uh, I, I looked back on the situation that he had with the Giants and sort of what the players were thinking, and they were just tuning him out. They absolutely tuned him out. They didn't believe anything that he was preaching. Um, and the fact that you decide to go ahead and basically turn him into the new Joe Judge, it doesn't make any sense if you were putting him in that game day management role now here's where i can turn things around is that if he is primarily involved in the scouting department i would be okay with that because we were hearing that when he was with the giants he wanted the team to move up and get patrick mahomes Hmm, good job there he also had interest at that time in josh allen and lamar jackson if, if I'm being correct, that scouting so far is three for three because all three of those quarterbacks have panned out. And he just basically was in a, a, a fight with um the general manager and ownership um in terms of going after uh, a quarterback because instead they decide to saddle up with Daniel Jones. I know Jones was uh, after McAdoo's times, but his his eyes for quarterbacks has been really good in recent memory. So if he is in that scouting department, like this, this to me signals that they are going for a quarterback. They're going for a quarterback in that first round. Now, there could be a bunch of different plays involved. They could just straight up take one at number three, which I will continue to preach that they should do. Whoever is left out of Caleb Williams, Drake May, and Jaden Daniels, I want those three. Either one of those three. Whoever's left, I want to see them take it. Or what they could do is take Harrison Jr. at three maybe trade into the first round and get a later quarterback. That's not the option that I want them to do, but that's an option that they could do if McAdoo uh, decides to suggest it. So if he is primarily in the scouting department and is just looking for a quarterback in that draft, I will take him. I will gladly put up with it. But I don't want him anywhere involved in the offensive game day management Um constructing an offense, running an offense. I want nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. Because this guy created a crazy situation during his time with the Giants, and it did not pan out. 
and his time with the Panthers as offensive coordinator did not pan out. It's like how many more times does the Patriots have to do this, whether Bill Belichick's there or not, to find out that this is a bad move, okay? You look at what Belichick did, bringing in all his friends, doing Matt Patricia, um, doing Joe Judge, uh, Bill O'Brien. Like, you're just bringing in the name. You're not bringing in the resume. You know, this this does is like the least amount of that when you're putting that in the category of Judge, O'Brien, Patricia, that kind of stuff. He's at the bottom of the list because he's not an FOB. He's not a friend of Belichick. Um, but the scenario and the situation that he were involved in would turn everyone away in a heartbeat. Why do you think the Patriots were the only team that were looking to hire Ben McAdoo as an offensive assistant? He only lasted one year with the effing Panthers, for goodness sake. Okay? So this could blow up in their face or it could work out well if he is correctly scouting and picking the right quarterback. So that's the only reason I'll put up with it is that if he is involved in the scouting, that's it. That is it. I don't want him anywhere involved in any kind of game day management, whether it be on game day or in preparation for game day. So that's your Patriots news of the week. It, again, when it looks like things are looking pretty good with the hiring of Alex Van Pelt, boom, you have Macro, Elliot Wolf, or whoever it may be making the call to bring in Ben McAdoo, which is one step forward, two steps back, if you're asking me. But I mean, it could be worse. They could be the Red Sox trying to look for some PR out there, which is what I fully believed happened when uh, Fenway Sports Group announced that Theo Epstein will be back as a senior advisor. Now, everyone got so excited being like, the guy who broke the curse in 2004, he gave us two championships. He broke the Cubs curse. The Maybe the greatest executive in MLB history is back. Let's hit the break. Let's pause. Because unless they are giving him the keys to make these changes, this hiring does nothing. This, to me, totally looks like ownership trying to get in everyone's good graces. This is John Henry after putting out that statement um, with some kind of, with the uh, the PGA investment that he had um, with Fenway Sports Group and the, the statement that he put out there. This is him, Sam Kennedy, Tom Werner, everyone saying, you know, we have had some bad PR. Let's get some good PR about, out there and let's get Theo Epstein back, okay? So this is Theo Epstein. And not only that, this is Theo Epstein's return to just get everyone in good graces. Theo doesn't need this. He doesn't need Boston. He could literally stop what he was doing right now, go retire down in Boca Raton, Florida, and just live his life. But what did he do? He broke two legendary curses. He implemented the pitch clock, which for right now is the greatest revolution um, in the history of baseball. He could literally die right now and he could go to the Hall of Fame. He doesn't need to do anything else. So the fact that Theo decides to willingly come here is it was it was an interest it was interesting to me it raised an eyebrow and then you have Sam Kennedy coming out during truck day saying that it's just an interim stop and he won't be involved in the day-to-day -day operations well you know what that is that's another case of ownership blowing smoke up everyone's ass and trying to get everyone excited for something that is not going to be true this is full throttle this is it's expensive to have baseball players like just come out and say the truth for goodness sake like, actually have an investment. Instead, you decide to deflect it over to Theo Epstein, someone who's always going to have good PR with them. And don't get me wrong. Whatever Theo does, it's not going to be his fault. 
it's going to be ownership's fault for putting him in this position. You know, I initially thought that um, it was going to be uh, Craig Breslow, who was still going to be the GM. He was going to make these moves, and then he was going to report to Theo. And if Theo, like, sort of gives the nod of approval, then you could say it's a good move. But the fact is, if Kennedy's coming out and saying that it's just an interim stop, he's not going to be involved in day-to-day operations. Like, I'm not expecting him to be the general manager. Like, I'm not expecting him to overtake Craig Breslow or whatever, but at least he's going to have some kind of input in the Red Sox because we don't have to. I mean, you even heard it in the quote when um, Theo was hired, you know, that Fenway Sports Group, uh, great job by Chris Cotillo, who we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and his partner at Mass Live, Sean McAdam. Like the the statement that they were saying is that they feel like they could have given more attention to the Red Sox that they deserve. Well, duh. I don't know why it took them this long to figure it out. So basically what they're doing is, okay, Theo's going to take care of the Red Sox side of things. We're just going to continue to do the same thing and let him take all the criticism. Let him take all the questions. Oh, no, 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 no. Werner, Kennedy, and Henry do not get a pass in this. They don't get a pass in this at all this is strictly a pr thing that i mean theo is going to be accomplished as well he's going to be involved i'm not saying like he's just going to be hired as like a a promotional spot and he's not going to do absolutely nothing no he will be involved in some point i don't know what it is he'll be involved in but this to me does not signal a red sox turnaround in the near future not for one second at all if everyone was fully expecting that Oh, now that Theo's here, they're going to go sign Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery. They're going to give a big extension to Brian Bale and to Tristan Casas. No, they're not going to be doing that. Nothing is going to change with Theo Epstein being hired. He's just going to be another executive in that ownership group who takes a ton of heat. Um, Even though he shouldn't, I still think everyone should put the heat on everyone but Theo. Um, He's just going to be another guy in that ownership group where we continue to ask, why aren't you investing more in the Boston Red Sox, which is basically the central point of the Fenway Sports Group? You know, so so it's good to see Theo back, but he's not going to do anything for me, at least not in in my eyes. Um, but speaking of returns to Boston, we saw this past Sunday the return of Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart back in the garden. Um, obviously, he didn't play. Uh, for the Grizzlies, he's still hurt right now at the ring finger. Um, but I gotta say, it was good to see uh, Marcus back, uh, considering the tough situation that he's in. He's had a bunch of injuries, um, and he's probably he's definitely gonna miss the playoffs for the first time in his career in Memphis. And they've just been dealing with a ton of injuries, and you know, kind of reflecting on Smart the way he was, he was to me right in the middle of being loved and being hate. Like I absolutely loved his hustle, his dedication, his commitment. Like, I very much enjoyed that, you know, all throughout his his nine seasons with the Celtics. The thing that I hated, though, were the late-game situations. I hated the decisions that he made, the one that he he always had to take that shot um, instead of giving it to Tatum and uh, Jalen Brown, you know, those kinds of decisions or whatever. I, I hated that at all. But... It was. It's just nice to see see him back. Like I'm in the fifty two forty eight market of like I loved him. You know, I I I really did. I I always give credit to a guy who would dive on the floor, make those winning plays that most other guys 
um, wouldn't make. So I, it was kind of nice to see Smart back and to sort of look back on the times that he had. It wasn't a championship. Obviously, he's not going to be in that category of the the Bird, the Pierce, Garnett, Rondo, that kind of thing. But it was just nice to sort of see him back considering how long he was uh, in Boston. But the other news coming out that uh, kind of opened my eyes was Jalen Brown thinking uh, he's seriously considering participating in the dunk contest. Now, immediately I thought this feels like a few years too late because I would have loved to see him participate years ago, you know, in his like second or third year when all he was was dunking when Kyrie Irving was getting the shots and Jason Tatum was just breaking out. He was sort of that steady guy. And I'd be okay with it as long as he doesn't push himself to the point of injury. But then when you do a deeper dive into this, and then you look back into the Lakers' loss uh, this past Thursday, where he only had eight points the night that he was named a reserve in the All-Star game. To me, it, it gets me thinking, like, is all he's caring about right now are the accolades? Like, it's one thing to, like, be named to the All-Star team and, like, win a title, but if you're getting into the dunk contest, like, is really winning for the Celtics, winning a championship, like, the biggest priority out there right now? Because, I mean, think about it. Think about it like this. The the first part of the season where he really struggled, um, this came after he signed the big contract extension. Like, did he, all he think about was care about the money? And then once, like, that sort of headline was out of there, he started playing well. And then when he gets named an all-star reserve, um, he puts up a dud against the Lakers team that didn't have LeBron or Anthony Davis playing. And now he wants to go into the dunk contest. Um, and, you know, it, it will, I'm not concerned about it right now, but if it gets to the point where he actually does participate in the dunk contest and then goes into the all-star game, and then those first couple of games after the all-star break, he's going to continue to put up duds. That's going to concern me a lot. It really will if that is the case because I'm starting to think that, I mean, I'm just going back to the Lakers' loss, they were, that was all on the players. They didn't have any motivation at all. They didn't put in any effort. They thought without LeBron and Anthony Davis that they were just going to walk over the Lakers. Lo and behold, it's more than just LeBron and AD who plays for Los Angeles. Um, you know, it, it will. It, time will tell if all Jalen Brown is thinking about is just what he can put on his resume to a possible Hall of Fame career. Well, guess what? If you really care about accolades so much, a championship is the biggest accolade you can get. So maybe you should start focusing on that instead of doing stat padding and adding all-stars to your list and a dunk contest champion to your list. All right, Let, let's just think about it like that. So only time will tell at least to form my opinion on where that could go. Um, and then just quick note on the Bruins before we end this segment. Uh, we were originally supposed to have uh, Bridget Pru on the podcast, but uh, plans had come up and we'll have her on uh, next week. But uh, at least for the Bruins to start their playoff push uh, tonight, I think, like I said last week, defensively and goaltending. Got to find that consistency. Pasternak has to show up in the postseason. Um, I think Jeremy Swayman should continue to be the number one, and he's going to be the number one uh into the playoffs, and hopefully the defense can actually bail out their goaltender, Swayman and uh, Linus Hallmark. So there's your 411 on what's going on here in the city of Boston, but we're actually not going to stray too far away from the city uh, with our LOL moment of the week coming up next because there was a moment during a Celtics game that 
really caught my attention and had me doing the legit LOL. We'll get into that wrapping up the show next. And now to wrap up our show, as we always do, we get on the lighter side of things and look at our LOL moment of the week. Now, this one needs a little bit of context, so just bear with me in this. Um, There's a new uh, virtual reality setup that was released by Apple that's basically been taking over everything. It's basically you can put on the the headset and basically work it like a computer or a phone or whatever. Um, So then you start to see uh, some viral videos going out of people like actually using it. You know, it could be people literally like I could be right here and I could be like composing an email or whatever while I'm podcasting um, or whatever. Um, So we now fast forward to uh, the Celtics game where we see a fan at courtside and we'll show the video for uh, everyone uh, who's watching on YouTube. This fan had this thing on uh, courtside during the Celtics game and he was basically using it and he was like simulating a <laughs> basketball or whatever he was like playing basketball like he's literally standing up at courtside and he's like faking going between the legs or whatever maybe it's like a, a, a game or something uh that that's on the it's like an application or whatever and he's like it, it's like a basketball game or whatever but it's just it was just, it, it's funny. Like I go, I go to a game and if I was sitting at courtside, I wouldn't be having anything. I wouldn't be getting on my phone. I wouldn't be on a computer or whatever. I would be there and I would be in the moment, but you have this fan literally putting on the VR set and he's simulating basketball, then watching it on the pro level, only feet, feet away from, from his vision. <laughs> it was, I, I literally like laughed. I legit laughed out loud when i saw this i was like what are you doing it'd be one thing if like this was like someone in like the 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 balcony or whatever or it's like court level but this dude was at court side and he was using it it was just so so funny uh for me to watch but i will say nothing will beat um the video of the guy on the new york subway absolutely using it he was literally like typing a uh computer or whatever it was like he was using a computer and it looked totally normal on the New York subway and you just had everyone sort of sort of giving a double look like what the what the heck is that so I mean I, I'm not a fan of virtual reality at all I've never used the virtual reality set but if this is what people want to use so be it I just wouldn't use it courtside at an NBA game because it is one of the most prestigious things out there like if you want to use it like on your couch or whatever you know go ahead and uh and do that and it, it does look cool. I mean, I'd like to try it at least, but I'm not going to, you know, own it or whatever. I'm not going to, you know, head to the Apple store and now trade in uh, my MacBook Air for um, this Apple VR set, uh, mainly because I need this laptop to keep doing these podcasts <laughs> out there. Um, and then I just don't like virtual reality at all. So uh, this fan for taking the courtside experience to a whole nother level, I guess you could say. Uh, has landed himself into this week's LOL moment of the week. And there you have it with episode 103 of Let Me Speak. Thank you everyone for tuning in wherever you're getting this podcast. If you're watching us on YouTube, 
or streaming it, listening to it, Spotify, Apple, wherever it may be. Make sure you're following myself on uh, social media, on Twitter or X. I am Joe Braverman PBP. Um, You can get me on Instagram and Facebook, and you can also get this podcast on those same platforms. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. I thank you once again for tuning in. We will see you next time for episode 104 of Let Me Speak. Later. Later.